As mentioned, the words of our text are the verses 13 through 17 of chapter, of chapter 4. And let's read those verses again in preparation for hearing them proclaimed. James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and then do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if your reaction to this text is anything like mine, you might at first be wondering, what's James' problem with the people that he's rebuking. A quick reading of verse 13 suggests that they're probably traders or businessmen of some kind, and it doesn't really look like they're doing anything wrong. They're making plans to go into a journey into some specific cities and spending some time there doing business, making money. Isn't that what business is all about? Is James anti-business, or is he anti-planning? Are we not allowed to make plans? Or is James just getting uptight about a few missing words, if the Lord wills or Lord willing? If so, it seems like a bit of an overreaction. He calls it boasting, arrogant, and evil. Now, we know it's not an overreaction because James was a very wise and godly man, and this is inspired scripture. It isn't just James speaking, but it's God's spirit speaking to us. So what is the problem here? What are we missing? And could it be that there's a lesson here to be learned by us? We'll try to answer those questions this afternoon by considering what James says in our text. 
he gives his first response in verse 14. He says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? He asks us. You are a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes. Now, why, the question for us is, why is this an appropriate reaction to the scenario that he describes in verse 13? It sounds like it comes somewhat out of the blue. But if we read this and then we look back in that light at verse 13, there are some things that that start to stand out. First of all, we can notice they're talking about spending an entire year in this place where they intend to go. Secondly, they're predicting or even, you could say, declaring ahead of time what the outcome will be. Third, there's no qualifiers. No, we hope to. No, our plan is to do such and such. No, assuming all goes well. It's just a straight declaration of the future. We will do this or that. So if this is a statement of intention, it's very strongly worded to the point of overconfidence. Finally, and this is the critical point for James, we can notice that there's only two points of reference in verse 13, when there should be three. In everyone's story, everyone's life, there's always three, the person, their life, and their God. But in this case, there's only two, the person and their life and plans. No reference to God, neither as the one who gives them life, nor as the one for whom they live. And that in spite of the fact that our every breath and our every heartbeat come from God. So James then hits them with the obvious truth of verse 14, that you don't even know whether you'll wake up tomorrow. What makes us assume that we'll take another breath The problem with the statement in verse 13, assuming it's meant to reflect a way of thinking, is that there's no consideration at all for what God might have planned. There's only me and my plans. And that's why James responds the way he does. If we make our plans without any reference to God, we've not only forgotten what our lives are for, but we've even forgotten where they come from. We've forgotten what they're for, Because we weren't just created for profit or for pleasure, but to love and to serve and to glorify God. And we've forgotten where they're from if we are able to describe an entire year's worth of plans without once making reference to God, because it is only by his grace that we can even draw the next breath. At best, that's taking grace for granted. At worst, then they would have altogether forgotten their God. So to correct that perspective, James reminds us, what is our life after all? He's absolutely right. Our lives are just a vapor. They appear for a brief moment and then they're gone. Ask the thousands of generations who've gone before us already. Take a look at a gravestone. There's always two dates on a gravestone. And there's only a small line in between every one of those. And that captures our entire lives. In that short little space is all the plans and our childhood and our old age and everything in between. And what those gravestones teach us is that we have no way of controlling either one of those two dates. 
The preacher in Ecclesiastes is right. The battle isn't to the swift, nor the race, or the race isn't to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But from our perspective, time and chance do happen to them all. When we find ourselves making our plans without considering whether we will even live or die tomorrow, then haven't we lost some perspective on our lives? If we're capable of talking about our lives the way that's described here in verse 13, then haven't we become presumptuous if we're honest and a little too confident in our own abilities? And it's not that James is calling his readers and us to become obsessed with the brevity and fragility of life. That would paralyze us and then we couldn't live or plan at all. And that's not what the preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us to do either. It's good to plan, and it's good to be busy, and it's good to enjoy our lives, as long as we're able to do that without losing perspective and forgetting who it is that sustains us and who it is that we're living for. So at the end of chapter 11, the preacher says, Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart Give you joy in all the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, he says, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. A couple verses later, he says also, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you, find, when you say, I find no pleasure in them. It's good to be busy. It's good to make plans and to enjoy our lives. But there are ways to do that that take into consideration the brevity and the fragility of our lives. And there are ways to do that that are inappropriate and that require us not to think about the brevity of our lives and the possibility of our death. And the difference between these two ways of living our lives lies in our view of God. You see, God made this world wonderful and beautiful and filled with all kinds of pleasures and joys. The pleasures of food, the pleasures of hard work, the pleasures of beautiful children or a delightful spouse, the pleasures of rain and summer breezes, the rough texture of hardwood. Life is full of pleasures. We only need to watch a young child discover the world to be reminded of that once again. God made this world in such a way that we would praise him, that we would delight in all these things and give him glory, that we would see his beauty and his goodness in the pleasures and delights of this world. So as we delight in this world, we ought also to delight even more in the God who created this world and who sustains it. It is all meant for thanksgiving. As 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, whether we eat or drink, Let us do it all with thanksgiving to the glory of God. But then since the fall into sin, when mankind rebelled against God, God brought death into this world. And he brought death into this world for the same reason that he brought life into it, so that we would be driven to him. So he put a limit on the pleasures of this world so that we would learn that the creation is not to be worshipped, but the creator So how should we as men and women and children respond to that deep and painful truth that now our lives most surely will come to an end, and it will be quick? 
that every one of us will surely die and that for all we know, it could happen tonight. Well, we should let the brevity of our lives remind us that we are nothing and have nothing apart from God. That is why he brought death into this world. And so we should let that reality sink into our minds so that we do begin to live before God's faith, before God's face and not as autonomous from him. And we should do that every day, every moment as we were created to do. Then we may actually enjoy the pleasures of this life because then even those pleasures remind us of the goodness of our God and they point us back to him. But the problem that James is dealing with is that that is not our heart's default reaction. Instead, we in our world, and especially in our Canadian culture, we so often try to ignore the reality of death and the fragility of our lives. We try as best as possible to put that as far away from our minds as we can and to try to find lasting pleasures from this world from food, from sex, from business ventures, from plans. And so we do like they do in verse 13 and boast about our plans and talk about this business venture that we're going to do and this house that we're going to buy. And we never stop to consider that the Lord might demand from us our lives this very day. We're like the rich man that our Lord describes in Luke 12, storing up vast amounts of savings for a luxurious retirement in Florida without once stopping to consider what inevitably happens after that retirement and what may happen even tonight. The fact is, as the preacher says, that we are as much in control of our lives as fish are in control of the net that suddenly envelops them. So why do we find it so difficult to live with that daily awareness of our God? We find it difficult because of the old nature that still lives in us. Because apart from Christ, we have no other choice than to put God as far away from our minds as possible. Because the thought of God is terrifying. The thought of God and the thought of death is synonymous for the unbeliever and for the old nature with the thought of judgment. We know that we are living to serve ourselves in our old nature and not him for whom we were made. But now James is writing to a Christian audience, to an audience that is in Christ. And in Christ, our creator and our sustainer has also become our father, who is not synonymous with the thought of judgment, but who truly loves us. In Christ, we're made blameless and pure, and we have nothing to fear from death. The thought of death is not synonymous with judgment. Yes, it is still painful and Tragic to give up, for now, those delights of being alive. But when we die, and we let go of the thrill of life, we still do not die to the knowledge of hope. In Christ, we use that knowledge of death and the shortness of our lives the way that God intended death to be used, to humble us, to drive us back to him. In Christ, the thought of our creator now is not just bearable, but it's actually delightful. It's far more delightful than any of the pleasures that this world has to offer. So in Christ, we can rejoice in this life. We can enjoy the pleasures and delights of this world. And we can do all of that to the glory of God and do that in a way that draws us near to him. 
we may do so because our hope is not here on this earth, but is in heaven. So that's the background, the theology behind what James is saying. Let's turn now back to our, our text and look at the details there. The people that James is taking issue with in verse 13, they've not just forgotten to mention God in their plans. They've chosen to make their plans without reference to him. He has no place in their plans. And it means that they need to do their best to not think about the fact that it is he who gives them life and that it's for him that they're supposed to live. So James, in verses 14 to 17, corrects that arrogant way of thinking. He points out the obvious when he says in verse 15 that instead we ought to be saying, if it is the Lord's will, then we will live and do this or that. How often don't we forget to say, if it is the Lord's will, then we'll live tomorrow, and then we'll be able to do this or that. And it's not as if our problem is just that we don't say, Lord willing, often enough, though that is probably true. Instead, he's taking issue with the reason why we so infrequently remember to say these words. And it's because we so often have forgot to even consider the Lord's plans in our lives. His problem is not that they just forgot a few words, but that they really have no place for God in their plans and in their way of thinking about their lives. And at the root of that way of thinking is pride and arrogance. He says so in verse 16. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's arrogant because how could anyone really accidentally forget about these things? How could we forget that God is the one who sustains our life, who gives us every breath, and whom, for whom we're supposed to live? How do you forget something that big and that obvious, that basic to our life? If we forget, that, if we forget to consider what God has planned, it's not because we're forgetful people. It's because we choose to remember the things that matter to us. The fundamental problem with the attitude in verse 13 is that these people aren't interested in what God has planned. They're too preoccupied already with what they have planned. And that's why James feels it necessary to remind them of the brevity and the fragility of their lives. He asks, what is our life after all? Is it possible to innocently forget something like that, to innocently just forget that our lives are a breath that comes from the Lord. James says it isn't. He says it's boastful and evil. We forget to consider the Lord's will when we have decided to make this life and its pleasures the source of our satisfaction instead of him. At its deepest level, it's rooted in the same thing that drove Adam and Eve to take from the tree when God commanded otherwise, We might wonder with them, how could they have missed something so obvious? How could they have messed up so badly? God had just created them. He walked with them every day. They had been specifically commanded not to eat from that tree. How could they have got it wrong? Well, they got it wrong for the same reason that we get it wrong every day when God is not first and foremost in our plans. Fundamentally, We get it wrong because we have a declaration of independence against God in our old nature. 
It is saying, I don't need God, and I don't owe him anything either. And then if God has no determinative place in our plan-making, we're essentially living as if the sky is empty. If the consciousness of God's sovereignty and his sustaining over our lives doesn't make it into our day-to-day thinking, then we become essentially atheists in practice. We might confess faith in a sovereign God, but if we live in such a way that the reality of his sovereignty never actually makes it into our thinking, then what difference is there between our way of thinking and that of the atheists and agnostics in this world? We often worry in our day about the growing trend of atheism and agnosticism. Perhaps we should be more concerned with the atheism in our own lives, if that's how we think, if we see ourselves in these verses. Now, someone might ask, well, what difference does it really make whether I think this way or not? I could recognize that all this is true, but what difference does it actually make? I still have to make my plans. I still have to make profit and spend a year there. So what difference does it make? Well, the first thing that we should remember is that even if it didn't make a difference at all, even if at the end of the day we still end up with the exact same plans as anyone else, God still cares about our attitudes and our words. That's what faith is, after all. We believe with the heart, and we confess with the mouth. So many of our day-to-day actions will look similar to those in the world. We still need to make money. We still need to make plans. We still need to cut our lawns. Even if none of that looks any different, though in reality it, it certainly will, even if it didn't, it still matters to God how we think. What is the first and greatest commandment after all? Isn't it to love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our strength? Only one of those actually speaks to our actions. The rest are to our heart and our attitude. Our actions will flow out from that attitude. We live to glorify God. And this attitude that James describes in verse 13, it does the exact opposite. It's the essence of the unregenerate heart, which seeks to exclude God from our lives and to glorify ourselves instead of him, to worship ourselves and live for ourselves instead of him. So if verse 13 describes, at least in in part, the way that we think and that we make our plans, then it reveals the ongoing remnants of the old nature in us. This is not the way of faith. It's the way of sin, which rebels against God and which wants nothing to do with God. It rejects the fact that our every breath comes from him, and it rejects the the fact that our every breath is for him. It's fundamentally rebellion, and it fundamentally belongs to the unregenerate heart. So James is not just arguing over words. It doesn't solve the problem simply to say, Lord willing, more often. He's arguing over hearts. Do we think and do we plan like the world with no reference to God? Or do we think and plan as those who have been reconciled to God in Christ and who are aware of the fact that their lives are a breath and who let that fact lead them back to their God? So that's what James is arguing for. And yet, even if it made no difference... Or or rather, we can see then that even if it made no difference, God still desires our attitudes and our words to be conformed with his will. 
But in practice, it does make a huge difference in our lives. Many plans won't change, but suddenly a business trip to New York, for example, becomes an opportunity for God to use us. Suddenly, our conversations and our interactions are not merely about the weather, the nearest golf courses, or the financial bottom line. And speaking of the bottom line, suddenly that is no longer simply an ultimate goal on its own. Suddenly, a quick run to pick up something from Kijiji becomes an opportunity to meet with people, to express compassion and love, and to share the gospel. When we recognize that our lives are in God's hands, then we also open our plans up to these divine interruptions. And if we rightly acknowledge that whether we live or die does depend on the Lord's will, then will we not also stop to reflect on whether our plans are in accordance with his will? Will we not stop to reflect on whether we are living for ourselves or for him? Could it be that we already know deep down that we have been living for ourselves? Could it be that sometimes we fill our lives with plans and with busyness and with so many pleasures because we want to neglect or avoid what we know we ought to be doing? You may search your own hearts here, but I believe that this often is the case. And I think that's why James includes this last comment in verse 17. He says at the end of this discussion, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If we know what God is calling us to do, and we fail to do it, it's sin. If I were to ask you, where is God calling you to obey? Many of us would know that answer immediately. Maybe it's a confession of sin. Maybe it's reconciliation to a brother. Maybe it's something else. You know your heart, but do not delay. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes 5, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The Lord Jesus taught us the same in Matthew 5. He said, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there and go and be reconciled to your brother. Delayed obedience, again, is disobedience. Too easily, our plans and our busyness in life can become a means of delaying obedience. Yes, I would love to do what I know the Lord is calling me to do. Yes, I know I must reconcile to my brother, but today I'm busy, and tomorrow too. That's why James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. So let me conclude with some words of exhortation. First, if you see yourself in verse 13, do not despair, but do commit your life and your plans to God. Take to heart what James says, because it's true. Our lives really are a mist that appears for a short while and then vanishes. If that's not something that has driven us to God to find our meaning and significance in him, then we should let it sink in. Funerals can be so good for that exact purpose. They remind us of the brevity of this life and remind us that we must reconcile with our God. If we have not wholeheartedly been living before God's face 
and with our lives open to his redirection and sensitive to his will, then we should remind ourselves that it is for him that we live and it is from him that we draw our every breath. Second, let us remember that it is because we were enemies of God, resisting his will, that he sent Christ to reconcile us to himself, and that in Christ we are made pure and holy before him. Why is that important? Well, so that instead of loving and chasing after the things of this world and becoming wrapped up in the things of this world so that we forget our place before God and we forget the fact that we exist for him, instead we may use the delights and the pleasures and the busyness of this life and the knowledge that we will die to direct us back to God. As those who have been reconciled to him, that is our delightful opportunity. In God, in his presence, is fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16. That is the only way to rightly enjoy the pleasures of this life. And that's the only way to boldly face our death. Because of Christ, we know that our Father loves us and his presence is not something to flee from, but it is delightful. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Finally, let us do what we know is right whenever we know what we ought to do, and let us never let our plans and our busyness get in the way of doing what we know we ought to do. Let us always be open and sensitive to his will and willing to redirect our plans if he so desires. Let us remember that we are not our own. We do belong, both in body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He sustains us, and we exist for his glory. Amen. Let's respond to the proclamation of God's word by singing from Psalm 49, the stanzas 3 and 4.